Hello and welcome to the Tebby podcast. I'm Robin Powell. This podcast is brought to you by Regis Media. And for those who don't know, Regis Media provides high quality video content to financial advice and planning firms that get it. Our clients know their true value lies not in selling investment products, but helping their clients to lead the lives they really want. Whether it's marketing or educational content you're looking for, get in touch with us via the website at regismedia.com. Okay, our guest today is Spencer Yakap. Spencer is an investment journalist. He edits the Herd on the Street column for the Wall Street Journal. Previously, he wrote Ahead of the Tape and the Lex column for the FT. He's just written a book on the GameStop saga called The Revolution That Wasn't, How GameStop and Reddit Made Wall Street Even Richer. I'm certain that you'll enjoy my interview with Spencer Yakup. So, Spencer, thank you uh, for coming on to the Tebby podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Robin. So tell me very briefly, Spencer, about your career. Uh, I mentioned that you work at the, the Wall Street Journal and also what, why you decided to write this uh, latest book. It, it's not your only book. You've written other books, but your latest book, uh, The Revolution That Wasn't. So I, I've been a journalist now for almost 20 years. I, I spent the first 10 years of my, my career working in finance, which mm. I fell into by accident. I, I did enjoy it for the, the first few years. I was an analyst. I was a highly rated analyst. And then as I got more into just only seeing clients and only managing people, I just got bored with it. And I, I found the subject matter fascinating. I worked in emerging markets the entire time. Um, and a, a year or two working in emerging markets is like five or six working in developed markets. It's like dog years. Uh, because you see a lot happen. You see a lot of manias, panics, and crashes. And so I really became fascinated with why things go to the moon and why things crash back down to earth, uh, sometimes to irrational levels. And uh, during my time a a as an analyst, I mean, I, I, my, my parents were, uh, were pretty you know, poor immigrants to the US. Nobody mm. knew anybody on Wall Street. I, I, as I said, I fell into it by accident. And being in uh, the role that I was, wearing nice suits, making a lot of money, having a job in an investment bank, I, mm. I found people asking me a lot of questions uh, about their finances. And this was, let's say, during the the run up to the dot com crash. Friends of the mm. family, people who were were similar to my parents, who had, you know, not spent a, a penny more than necessary, scrimped and saved, and mm. didn't have any support network and backs against the wall, and finally had a nice nest egg, and and they were investing it in in this crazy stuff. And that they would ask my my advice uh, about what to do, uh, but then as soon as I would give it, which is don't do that, be careful, you know, consider yourself lucky, take some money off the table, they would, you know, they would start arguing with me because they were geniuses. They had made, uh, they had doubled or quadrupled their money in yeah. some internet incubator, and yeah. and and then I saw the same thing to a lesser extent in in the run up to the 08 crash, by which time mm -hmm. I was a journalist. Uh, it's funny, I was more experienced then, of course, but uh, but less credible because when you're making less money uh, and and not wearing a nice suit or mm -hmm. as nice of a suit maybe, then uh, then people tend to to take you a little bit less seriously. But in any case, I, I definitely uh, I, 
I'm interested in the subject and I'm interested in helping people. My first book, as you noted, is, uh, you know, in a similar vein. Uh, it's not about an event like this, but it's about the mistakes that that people make and basically mm -hmm. how you can become a much better investor, not by doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but by just eliminating the mistakes. So uh, mm. if you if you eliminate your mistakes, you you do so much better because the vast majority of, of investors lag a, just a simple market average. Um, mm. So the, the sort of the psychological and other tricks. And and this book, I, I knew I, I had to write it. I was uh, I, I I knew within ten minutes that there ha there had to be a book about it, and that I wanted to write a book about it. Mm. Uh, and the nature of the book changed uh, within a few days of of my deciding that. Um, I, I already had gotten a publisher interested. This was maybe before a few hours before articles began appearing about GameStop mania, but mm. I saw it happening. One of my sons, I have three boys. One of my sons brought it to my attention on mm. the wall street bets message board. And within three or four days, I, I had a, a much clearer idea, a bit different idea of, of what the story was because it, it took some crazy twists at, even after that. And uh, and, and turned into something else. It turned into this this fable, really, that Wall Street had been beaten, and yeah. that this was a way to make money. And so I, I wanted to, in no uncertain terms, to e explain why that that definitely was not the case. Hence the title, "The Revolution There Wasn't." So what you're saying is, is Spencer, you you decided to write about this kind of revolution, if you like, uh, in or or not in 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 financial services, um, and and then and then GameStop happened after you'd already decided that that's what you're going to write about. Is that is that right? Or did did uh, well, GameStop I, I I've been I've been writing about it. Most my first book was about that, and then GameStop happened, and I just knew mm. my first instinct was this is such a crazy story. This is mm. going to turn into such a crazy story that I, mm. I have to write about it. It's going to be a landmark event because, you know, the I, I'm I'm a big student of, of financial history, uh, mm. and uh, and so I love reading things here in the United States and uh, mm. elsewhere. But in the U.S., was a particularly crazy market in the 19th and early 20th century where you had uh, a lot of sort of these epic struggles, people doing things that are illegal today, watering stock and corner, yeah. cornering one another and stuff like that. And uh, that, that has not really happened. Um, I mean, there, there are a few great tales, barbarians at the gate and things like that, but you can't get away with things legally that you, you could prior to the, the passage of securities laws. And mm. here I saw something that was very much a century or more old maneuver uh, that was being done, it depends how you interpret it, but legally mm -hmm. and out in the open, so not illegally and behind closed doors and as a, as a plot, on social media. Mm -hmm. Because when you uh, ambush people who have sold a stock short, and just to, to be clear to, to your listeners who might not be familiar with that term, selling a stock short, there's nothing wrong or illegal about it, mm -hmm. but it's a very dangerous profession because it's uh, you are you are betting that a stock will decline, not not as most people do, betting a fund or stock will go up over time. And the the difference there is that rather than owning it, you uh, expressly don't own it; you borrow it, and you and then you sell it, and then you have to buy it back. One hopes at a lower price, and mm -hmm. then you profit. But the most that you can make from that is if the stock goes to zero and you made 100%. Uh, mm. The most uh, that you or I can can make on a stock is infinity. A stock can go up you know, thousands of percent, uh, mm. but the most we can lose is 100%. So if, mm. if, uh, if we buy a stock 
and it's Enron or, or something like that, and then tomorrow it goes to zero, uh, then we've learned an expensive lesson, but they don't come and take our, our home uh, yeah. and our possessions. They don't come after the rest of our money. We've just lost the money that we committed. Um, short sellers are in the opposite position, so they have to be very confident in their position, and they have to be very careful to get out of it if it starts going the wrong way. Mm. And and that's what happened in this case, but on on steroids, basically. It happened <laughs> yeah. to an extreme level, and it was designed to happen. Um, yeah. I, yeah. And so so that's that's what made it immediately interesting. And then and then it took on some new uh, new wrinkles that gave it a very much a, a consumer feel. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure all our listeners will 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 have heard of of, of GameStop. Uh, many, particularly uh, out, outside the United States, you know, m- might just benefit from a from a quick refresh on on sure. the details. Just 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 remind us, Spencer, h- how all this started. Sure. So I I do tell the story, and uh, um, I'm happy to say that even from people, and I think most people who pick the book up did know the at least the basic outlines of the story. They they liked hearing it again and they felt a sense of suspense the way that it was told. So that's mm. I didn't I definitely did not want to write a book that didn't didn't capture the sort of the twists and turns. But in a nutshell, what what happened was that uh, a group of, of people on a Reddit message board, Reddit is a social media network that calls itself the front page of the internet. It has many subgroups called subreddits where people talk about subjects that interest them. Yep. exchange information. And there's one in particular, very raucous one. It's at the beginning of my story, it had just crossed a, a million members, which made it large, mm-hmm. but maybe the 80th largest group on the on the site. So not not mm-hmm. one of the, the top ones. Um, and they would talk about how to sort of to hack the market, crazy things that you do. They, people would show off about money that they had made and post screenshots of their account. The membership was more than 90% male uh, based on a, a survey of its membership and uh, more than 92% below the age of 35. So yeah, a young, male, irreverent, rowdy audience. Mm. And this group began to notice that uh, there were some stocks, and GameStop was at the top of the list, were very heavily shorted. So there's a, a stock has a float, which are all the shares available to buy. Uh, if a stock is is very heavily shorted, then perhaps a fifth of its shares would be sold short, uh, mm. which means that um, if something, some good news happens or someone shows up and buys it, then those short sellers will rush to buy back up to a fifth of its shares, which is a lot for mm. any normal company. That means that uh, in addition to any good news, there'll be a further surge in the price. And you often see this in the stock market and wonder why, why did that stock go up so much on this news? Mm. It doesn't seem that good. And th- there's your explanation. It, it, they often overshoot to a large extent because there were a lot of skeptics that mm. were forced buyers. This company was at almost 140% uh, when the story ne- nears its uh, sort of really exciting phase. 140% is extremely rare. It is possible mm. without breaking the law. Because shares can be sold short, and then the person who buys it doesn't know that they bought a share from a short seller, and their broker lends the stock out again. GameStop was a real loser company. The other companies that were uh, in this group were AMC Theaters, which was months away from going bankrupt. There was BlackBerry. Uh, many listeners probably owned a BlackBerry at one point, yeah. but I doubt they own one today. I, I used to have one many years ago. Uh, Nokia, uh, again, Many people listening to this owned a Nokia yeah. phone. It was my first mobile phone. 
um, back in the 1990s, but my phone today is not. It's made by Apple uh, and and so on and so forth. So it was a handful of companies like these, and they were called the meme stocks collectively because this group used memes uh, as a form of communication. So sort of symbolic, funny, irreverent pictures as opposed to necessarily to text uh, mm. uh, to convey their their message and their their sentiments. And there was one hedge fund in particular that uh, had a pretty large position in this, and they made the mistake of identifying themselves too through some public securities filings. Mm. And they were being talked about in the open in the months leading up to this. Uh, and then some other events happened. Uh, a, a very uh, wealthy e-commerce entrepreneur by the name of Ryan Cohen uh, showed up and with a 10% stake in this company. Then he upped his stake. Then he wanted board representation. Then he got it. And all these things just started a cascade. The news from the company itself continued to be very bad in terms of losses and sales declining and things like that. But that didn't matter because mm. the only thing that, that mattered for a while was that all these these short sellers had bet against it and it was like think about here's an analogy for short sellers you know if you, short sellers will get short squeezes are 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 not infrequent in the market you think of a bunch of people in a, a movie theater or cinema uh and then someone drops a a lit cigarette on the carpet and there's smoke and then people panic and all head in the, for an exit and there's one exit and some of them get trampled and they're all sort of bruised uh as they as they get out. Well, this was like that, except it was a packed house and some people intentionally lit, lit it on fire and then doused it with uh, with kerosene uh, and then threw some dynamite in and then threw some nitroglycerin on top of the dynamite. I mean, it was mm -hmm. they, they did everything possible. They chose the exact investments. They discussed it on, online to get the most bang for the buck so that these in, in the end, it was millions of small accounts purchasing GameStop and these other meme stocks in order to really with the express intent of of inflicting pain on these hedge funds and sticking it to Wall Street and making money mm. in the process. So it was a twofer. Mm, mm. So um, the, the, the prevailing narrative at the time was certainly that, you know, th this was investor democracy in action, as you say, yeah. that little man <laughs> sticking it to the to the to, 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 to the big guy. It, it, almost a, a, a you know a sort of follow on from from Occupy Wall Street that it was a way to get back at the you know wealthy um, uh, Wall Street financiers. Um, but but you, you, the central tenet of your book, without giving too much away, is that actually the the, the narrative and and reality were, were were really very very different. That's right. That's right. And and. I... Listen, I, I, I'm a journalist, and journalists are, um, they pride themselves in, in writing the first draft of history, um, which is often a messy first draft. And, uh, and then they come back uh, and mm. revisit things. But the, the level of interest or the level of readership is, is highest when you're writing that first draft. And so that's why it's so important to get the, the tone right. And yeah. it, it seemed at the time to most journalists, there were, there were a handful of skeptics there, um, you know, my note, but the, most of the, the headlines were breathless praise of this populist uprising and how they had turned the tables. Would Wall Street ever be the same again? Wall Street has been democratized and, and so on and so forth. And I'd say one, one thing did change in the sense that social media uh, proved to be a potent new force. And these mm. very intuitive app-based brokers proved to be a new force. I go into some detail how they're very symbiotic. 
and 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 the, we we can go into more detail later in the podcast if you mm. you want to go in that direction. Mm. But the, these app based brokers, which exist elsewhere, not just in the, in the United States, mm. have really lowered the bar in terms of how long you have to think about something and how easy it is and how much it costs and how much you have to know. And especially for people who grew up with smartphones in their hands, that that's the, their, their entire sort of lives since, let's say, at least age 10 have been with a smartphone or some near predecessor of a smartphone. It's it's mm. totally intuitive for them. It's just like ordering a pizza. It's either easier than ordering mm. a pizza on Absolutely. their phones. Mm. So, uh, so that is different, but they did not stick it to the man uh, because Wall Street is a big place. And most people on Wall Street are middlemen. Uh, they're not these one or two hedge funds. There's one hedge fund uh, run by one of the best paid men in the world, uh, best paid in 2020, not last year. Uh, he, he took home $846 million personally in compensation in 2020. He was an extremely successful and, uh, and smart, he's still smart, uh, hedge fund manager, but, uh, but he suffered from, from hubris and, and very bad luck too. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, um, and he saw the signs and he, mm. he didn't take them seriously. And he cost his investors almost $7 billion, uh, mm. in a few mm. days. And there were a handful of other funds that also lost a lot of money, but, uh, sticking it to three or four hedge funds is not sticking it to wall street especially mm. when you've really enriched Wall Street in the process. And that's what I point out. And uh, a lot of the people who are involved in this don't, don't want to hear that. They, mm. um, they, you know, if you look on amazon.co.uk, you'll see quite a few one-star mm. reviews of people who didn't read the book who say that I'm a shill for Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just pointing out the truth. And, yeah, I, and the I, truth is that yeah. Wall Street had a very nice payday uh, mm. up and mm. down Wall Street, not just a few parts of Wall Street. Almost everybody on Wall Street had a great time because you've unleashed this wave of money and participation and reckless behavior and from investment banks to market makers to uh, to the brokers who took their orders and many people in between. It was a wonderful time for them and a less wonderful time for the people who participated. I, I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from with reviews. Thankfully, I don't get too many uh, one-star reviews either for, for my book or, or for the podcast. But when I do, you can spot them a mile off. They're people who basically don't like what you're saying effectively. Um, and, and, and what you're saying was far from, you know, the little man uh, winning here. It, it was the, it was actually the big hedge funds and, and Wall Street. So for those who don't understand why the casino wins in these uh, episodes just just briefly explain why why um you know why why were were they always going to to lose i mean obviously some people made made money out of it uh, but 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 um a, a lot didn't why 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 does wall street always win <laughs> well what so wall street is is not a a casino, but it has many casino-like elements, especially during certain junctures like this. So let's let's just use the analogy, Robin, of a, of a casino. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, Las Vegas is is full of casinos. Maybe there, I don't know how many twenty casinos on the the main strip there. Um, let's say uh, a, a group of of card counters um, goes to to Las Vegas, um, and they take a, a a game where the odds are against them, like blackjack. Uh, where you have, let's say, in any given hand, even if you're skilled, 
only a 48% chance of winning. The more you play, the more you lose. And they they turn the odds in their in their favor through card counting, which is not illegal, but casinos frown on it and uh, they will you're kind of persona non grata if you you do it. But let's say they they do it, they wear disguises and they you know they pretend not to know one another and they go in and they take the casino for tens of millions of dollars. And then they go next door and they take another casino for tens of millions of dollars before they're discovered. And there are newspaper articles about them and all these things. Well, then let's say that in the coming weeks and months, you have uh, hundreds of thousands of people visiting Vegas for the sole purpose of trying to replicate their luck, but they're they're less skilled at, at doing it or the casinos have wised up to them or, or what have you. Mm. The net result is that those one or two casinos had a very bad day or week or month uh, and mm-hmm. certainly lost money. But the attention drawn by the, um, the handful of people enriching themselves is, is good for every other casino. And not only is it good for every other casino where people play blackjack and have the typical odds of 48% and plow their money into it, which is good for those casinos, but it's also good for all the middlemen who never risk their money, the people who drive the taxi, the people who clean your room, the people yeah. uh, who own the hotel where you stay, the people who own the restaurant where you went to eat, uh, whether or not you made money. All those middlemen who are, are just there and and benefit from a larger crowd existing. And that those middlemen make up the majority of, of Wall Street. Uh, you know, whether it's it's active fund managers or brokers or the market makers who process the trades or the investment banks who benefit from the volatility, they they all are just happy that you showed up. They were not hurt by this. They were helped by this. They liked it. They liked this. In the, I, I, the story doesn't just cover this period of 10 or 11 days. It goes back mm. to 2019 and this moment in time prior to and then during the pandemic where in the United States, you had more than 10 million new retail trading accounts opened by mostly by these young, mm. uh, completely inexperienced investors who felt like they were geniuses because they came into it at a time uh, when social media was all abuzz all of a sudden about of all things Wall Street. It's not a very cool thing generally for young people, but it became a cool thing. It became a real pastime. Sports betting went away. I know in the UK it's existed for a while, but in, in the US it only oh, yeah. has yeah. Ex- existed since 2018 mm. uh, through smartphones. It, it existed prior to that just in person in Las Vegas and the Supreme mm. Court ruling. So you had lots of young men who were into sports betting on their phones. You had people all of a sudden who were home because of the pandemic in the early days, especially, who mm-hmm. uh, usually spend all their money that they make right away. They were mm. getting extra money from the government uh, and they had nothing to spend it on. Uh, and many people explicitly said they took their stimulus checks and they put it into a brokerage account and gambled yeah, and, with it. And and what you also had was 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 quite an extraordinary bull run. Uh, I mean, and not just the market that markets went up a lot, Robin. It's mm-hmm. that that almost every stock went up. So mm-hmm. from the the bottom of the March uh, the March lows mm-hmm. to a year later, ninety six percent of stocks went up. That's mm-hmm. never ever happened before. It was almost impossible. Like to, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. It was almost impossible to pick a loser, and, and success is a very bad teacher. You're listening to me, Robin Powell, interviewing Spencer Yakab from the Wall Street Journal on the Tebby Podcast, brought to you by Regis Media. 
Now, perhaps you're one of those people who've tried trading stocks on a site like Robinhood. Maybe you had a good outcome or maybe a bad one. But having listened to what Spencer has had to say, you're not convinced that buying and selling individual shares is such a good idea. Now, if that is you, there's a book that I've just written with fellow financial blogger Ben Carlson that you really ought to read. It's called Invest Your Way to Financial Freedom, and it's published by Harriman House. Mainly written for a UK audience, the book has no hidden sales agenda and is based on peer-reviewed academic evidence. It explains in simple terms how young investors can develop good habits, save a fortune in unnecessary fees, and achieve financial freedom many years earlier than they otherwise would. You can either buy the book direct from the publisher or via Amazon. The book is in paperback and there are Kindle and Audible versions too. So that's Invest Your Way to Financial Freedom by Ben Carlson and me, Robin Powell. All right, on with my interview with Spencer Yakup. Listen, I mean, having a having a retail brokerage account is not, not a, a problem. Um, I, I'll tell you that there was unfortunately they went out of business because of people like me i guess but there was a nice gym here in my town that i could walk to uh i live in outside new york city i went there for years my wife was a member too and it was was cheap and it was clean and it was open early and open until late and you know i would just i'd go every day um and i i was surprised when they went out of business and then i thought about their their business model and realized that uh, I, I was sort of a free rider because I, mm. I just paid the minimum. I didn't pay for lessons or protein shakes or mm. classes or anything like that. And, uh, and not enough people were doing that and they needed people like that to be able to, to stay in business. And so I was, as long as people were doing that, I was sort of a free rider on all of their spending because the gym could never make money off of just people like me. And in the same way, uh, a broker like Robinhood in particular here in mm. the United States uh, that um, that pioneered this zero dollar commissions can never make money off of you if you just go in and you buy a handful of exchange traded funds or index funds and then just don't check your account very often. Mm -hmm. They still have to honor your account. They still have to open it. It's still convenient. It's still insured like any other broker. You can open an account there or or any other discount broker. I'm, I'm not discouraging people from getting on the ladder mm -hmm. and opening an, some account, but you don't have to be like their typical customer. And their typical customer was hyperactive by any stretch of the definition. They checked their account more than seven times a day. There were customers who traded more than 10,000 times in a six-month period. What? Which is crazy. Think about that. You're, so you're trading at, at an annual pace of 22,000 times a year. Hmm. So even with the cheapest commission-only broker, you would have been spending more than $100,000 on, on commissions when commissions existed. Mm -hmm. The absence of commissions, you, you didn't think about that. You thought of it as free, and, you, and some people traded a crazy, crazy amount. Yeah. And it, it's been shown in study after study that the more active you are, the worse your results are on average. Of course, there are going to be exceptions to any, any rule mm -hmm. like that, but the, there's, a, there's a very, very stark, clear 
mm. inverse correlation between your level of activity, even your level of attention to your account mm. and and your results as uh, as a retail investor. Mm. Well, that, that's interesting because, you, you, you know, you, you, you talk about this sort of zero commission aspect and, and that's certainly uh, appealing to people. They, they think they're getting something free. But but in fact, it's that's not necessarily the case. I mean, the, these firms uh, m- always find a way of making their money somehow. Just just explain ha- how those zero commission trades are are subsidized, if you like, and 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 how the sure. customer does end up paying anyway. Sure. So in in the United Kingdom and Canada and and some other places, uh, if you buy a stock. Unless you do something like a contract for difference or whatever, let's not get into that to that sideline. But if you buy a, a stock or sell a stock, it goes through an exchange, which is a lit exchange. So one of those many transactions that you see if you watch those things was your transaction. Uh, in the United States, um, there are stock exchanges. There are about 15 stock exchanges, actually. Uh, but many retail orders don't go through those. They go to a market maker which is not lit. It's dark. And you don't see what happens. It goes into their black box and it comes out of their black box. And the only requirement for one of those to exist is that they give you at least as good of a price as exists on the stock exchange. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they give you a better price. So it, 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 they they say, and they're, they're not lying, that uh, they give very good execution. They have really powerful computers. But they're not a charity, right? They're, they're, they, even if they give you a better price, there's a reason they, they were able to give you a better price. They keep a little bit of it. So the most successful, uh, or the largest, I should say, but probably the most successful uh, by some order of magnitude, uh, is called Citadel Securities. They were the main payer to Robinhood because Robinhood sold its customers' trades to Citadel Securities and other firms. Uh, and those companies paid Robinhood. They will pay you this much per trade. They paid a certain number of dollars per per transaction, more for options than for for shares, and that's how Robinhood in 2020, which is uh, I describe in some detail, is how they made most of their their money. That's how they kept the lights on. That's how they uh, that's how they got their revenue. The company uh, that was the its bigger biggest counterparty had revenue of over $6 billion that year. It was, it's a private company, but that figure leaked and they confirmed it to me. Uh, and it had uh, operating profit of over $4 billion that year. We don't know how they did during the meme stock squeeze, which was a, a period of much higher activity uh, because those figures did, did not leak. Uh, I imagine that they, the business was, was really pretty good. Uh, the the major shareholder of Citadel Securities was called before Congress to to testify weeks after the meme stock squeeze um, and and ask a lot of questions about his business and so that's 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 how it happens it's not free obviously if, if you what you're doing is being sold then it's not free when you go on Facebook or Instagram it's not free either especially if you're very active it's not free if you're putting up pictures of you yourself and your children and clicking on things and giving personal information then those companies know how to advertise to you. They know that you're a real person, which is very valuable. They have pictures of you that they store away. And they they know about your likes and dislikes and preferences and your mm-hmm. circle of friends and lots of demographic information about you. And that's how they make so much money. You, you are not paying for it, but you're the product. And I, I think that that applies to, to these brokers that don't charge commission. They have made their 
customers unwittingly the product. And and to their credit, I mean, they have um, uh, when I say credit, uh, you know, they 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 have as businesses, successful businesses, they have made the whole process, as you said earlier, as simple as possible. I mean, I remember when. You know, I I sort of started to become aware of stocks and so on. Uh, you know, it, here you'd have to actually go into a stockbroker to to sort of place trades and so on. But but now you can literally just do it on your phone while you're waiting in the queue for a sandwich or whatever it is. Um, it it is it is that easy, um, and it's it's that kind of. Um, um, combination, if you like, of, of the technology becoming available to, to enable that easy um, sort of those, those sort of easy transactions to take place. And as you say, social media as well um, at the same time, which which kind of almost sort of plays on our sort of herd mentality. Um, are you worried about sites like like Robin Hood and 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 so on and and the impact that they that they might have on 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 young people, particularly as you know you, as you, as you said I mean it was hard not to make money uh, for for most of twenty 2020 twenty and twenty one, but but you know as we've seen lately markets can go down as as well as up and and a lot of those uh, young people who think they're geniuses are going to have a very rude awakening. Yes, I, I am worried uh, because uh, in in this country, in particular, in the United States, there you know people speak about a, a retirement crisis, people mm-hmm. who are uh, five or, or ten years away from retirement, and we have a very uh, tattered social safety net here, and mm-hmm. uh, and they have little or nothing saved. They've made errors, or they've had their pockets picked along the way, or they didn't realize the value of saving until too too late, or they're paying too much to um, um, people who are not really looking out for their interests to to build a nest egg or, or what have you, or they just had bad luck. Uh, but there's a retirement crisis uh, for young people too, because young people uh, up until this episode were not very interested in, in finance and saving. You know, there would be uh, young people at my place of work in the United States who were financial journalists, but they maybe they were mm-hmm. say they journalist first and then they finance was where they got the job. And so their, their interest level in finance wasn't universally high, you know, and it just would come up like, oh, there's a there's a workplace savings plan, you know, that uh, you get this tax advantage here in the US and ask them about it. And like, no, no, I haven't started doing that. Like, you know, this is the the easiest, best time for you to save. So yeah. the, yeah. they just weren't engaged as a generation. It wasn't cool. Mm-hmm. So here here's something that made it cool, that made it very, mm-hmm. very easy. And let me tell you how easy. You could hear about something on social media. You could open an account and you could trade within 10 or 15 minutes. That's how easy it was. So it, it takes a few days for money to, uh, if you, I opened an account with, with a more established broker, mm-hmm. I could open an account now. It'd be days before I can actually make a transaction. Mm-hmm. I, I have time to cool off and think about it, about that thing that I just heard about from my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with Robinhood, their default mode is that they'll say, yeah, okay, we know the money's coming. We'll just let you trade with our our money. They don't say that because they don't they have to explain the whole mm. the system of cash moving through the United States economy, but they they say you can trade right away. And these mm. people mm. think that they're trading with their their money and there's no, it's so easy and so intuitive and such a beautiful app, uh, mm. so intuitive, especially for that generation, that there, there's no friction there. So mm. they they go straight from, hearing about it so you know on one app on their phone to 
acting on that that tip uh, on another app on their phone. It might take five or ten seconds to do, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And and you need to think more than five or ten seconds before uh, before investing your money into something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I do see problems because this generation, well, some of them, I think, will take the right lessons from it and realize mm-hmm. that they you know slow and steady wins the race. Uh, but I think a minority. I think some minority will become degenerate gamblers as a result because three or four percent of people who, who spend time in a casino will become degenerate gamblers. It's the same yeah. that you know, just like alcoholism or anything else. I think some people just have a, uh, you know, are, are a propensity to to do that, which is really a mm-hmm. shame because that's a that's a form of gambling too. And uh, and then some subset will become very bitter about Wall Street, and uh, and walk away from it and think that it's crooked. And it's really not crooked. I mean, of course, you know, the, most people mm-hmm. working in finance are 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 not crooks. Uh, you have to to engage with them uh, on your terms to your benefit, and to be educated. Pay as little as possible. Don't uh, don't deal with charlatans. Deal with people who get paid on the back end rather than the front end, like like these brokers. And uh, you can have a very fruitful relationship with with mm-hmm. the financial establishment because. The stock market is a wonderful compounding machine over over the decades, uh, and, and yeah. they're costing themselves a lot of money by by if, if that's if that's mm-hmm. the conclusion that they draw. The, the, there is a theory, isn't there, Spencer, that that you know it's actually good for young people to kind of make mistakes early on in their investing career. I, I hear that argument quite quite a lot, but you know, you mentioned you know that you, you you've got children as well, and 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 I do too. Who you know, I've I've encouraged to kind of invest sensibly, but I I would be horrified to think of them you know risking large amounts on these meme stocks or cryptocurrencies and 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 so on. What what do you make of that argument that that we we ought to let young people make their own mistakes? Well, first of all, enough young people as a group. I mean. The, the technological changes that have made a lot of good things possible in finance, like index funds, like um, you know, like robo advisors and things like that, mm. uh, also ha- have made this possible. And it, it wouldn't have been possible twenty years ago for somebody with fifty dollars in the United States to open a brokerage account mm. and mm. and trade. They wouldn't have have allowed them to do it. They would have chewed through their money very quickly. If they chose to be active, and and that would be that. Uh, today, the the costs and the um, the sort of the, the whole complications of the process have been through technology and competition have been brought down to the point that you've opened finance up to people with very little money, which mm-hmm. is good and bad. And uh, I think that uh, these are just more fish to be fed to the sharks. Uh, as far as Wall Street is concerned, I don't like fish being fed to sharks, whether they're middle-aged people with big savings or, uh, or young people with not a lot of savings. I don't think that that's it's positive. Period. Uh, you know, a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars when you're 23 years old has a long, long time to compound. Uh, the ultimate, you know, cost of that of that money when you really need it when you're you're too old to work or you're ill, or or whatever, uh, can be could be a lot more. If you were to invest it sensibly, cool. not just mm-hmm. fritter it away on, on stuff. So I, I think that there's there are definite downsides. Uh, there are kind of psychic downsides, and there are financial downsides to making, making those mistakes. Um, no, so I don't like seeing seeing people 
preyed on uh, by by these companies and by financial influencers at all. I, I think it's it's a, a negative for most of them. I, I hope that I'm wrong about that, but I, you know, we'll we'll see. Let's have this discussion again in 20 years, Robin, and and maybe maybe I was wrong, and I hope so, but mm. I, I don't think mm. that it's a good thing. Mm. Well, it, it's been really interesting talking to you. If it, a lot of it's actually been a little bit a little bit depressing uh, yeah. <laughs> and and a little bit scary um but but maybe we could just end on a on a sort of slightly more positive note uh, towards the end of your book you 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 basically i can't remember the name of that chapter but you 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 called basically... bonus round yeah it's a very yeah, video game yeah. video game theme cheat code bonus round yeah. yeah so 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 you 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 basically explaining how you know um actually things are pretty good uh, for investors today if you just don't play their their game play a play a different less exciting game in a nutshell what is that game that investors should be playing so the 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 goal of this group was twofold not everybody had the same two goals but the the significant overlap stick it to wall street and make money now you want to if you have a dim view of wall street and i do understand why many people do Here's a way to to stick it to Wall Street uh, by paying them very little and to do well, to, let's say, to outperform 85% of your peers, do well. Uh, and that's by basically not playing the game, by being passive, uh, by engaging with Wall Street in the, the cheapest way possible, as infrequently as possible, not, uh, not buying the recommendations of uh, whether they're young financial influencers or older talking heads in suits who go on TV, who go and tout stocks, just tune it out and ignore it. You don't need sophisticated, deep financial knowledge. You just need to understand the incentive structures of this business. And you need to understand slow and steady wins the game. Compound interest is a very powerful force. You know, you you don't need to be a, a great financial expert. I think you just need to to understand the the industry's incentives and that that there are really cheap, good ways to engage with it, for example, through index funds or robo-advisors, or if you need a human to hold your hand, then a human advisor who's a fiduciary, who looks out for you, who will hold your hand and just don't check in on it constantly. Uh, check in on it as, you know, save, but trust the process and you'll you'll do quite well and Wall Street will not like you because you are. <laughs> so if you don't like Wall Street, well, it'll be the feeling will be mutual because Wall Street is making very little money from you. They used to make a lot of money doing things like that. And these days uh, it's been computed down to, to pennies. So you'll be like me going to the gym. Not that I wanted my gym to go out of business, but uh, mm -hmm. but that you'll be you'll be like me. If, if everybody's like me, then the gym can't make money. And, and you, you can be the same kind of economic free rider. And that's about it from this episode of the Tebby podcast. A huge thank you to Spencer Yakab for coming on and talking about his new book, The Revolution That Wasn't. It's published by Penguin Books and do read it, you won't regret it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like it and subscribe to the podcast. We'd love you even more if you could write a review. And one more thing. Content such as this would not be possible without the help of our strategic partners, to whom we are extremely grateful. Tebby's principal partners in the UK are S&P Dow Jones Indices and Sparrows Capital. We also have a strategic partner in Ireland, PFP Financial Services, a financial planning firm in Dublin. 
We're currently seeking partnerships in North America and Australasia with firms that share our evidence-based and client-focused philosophy. So if you're interested in finding out more, do get in touch via the Tebby website at evidenceinvestor.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.